Comms Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Now, we have a slightly abridged program this week, um, largely because we, we had a little bit of a COVID scare in the office. <laughs> that means that I'm all on my lonesome in the studio today. Um, but we will, we will press on regardless. We've got um, quite a lot of uh, captured audio this week, um, particularly from the Telstra first half results. A very interesting analyst call that gave some fantastic insights into what's going on in the marketplace right now, which have some applicability to all telcos and not just Telstra. But first, NBN and Chief Development Officer Rural and Remote, Gavin Williams. He revealed in a Senate estimates hearing this week that an outage on the Sky Muster service last year was caused by a micrometeorite. Here he is, being queried by ALP Senator Anne Urquhart. Um, on the 21st of December, Skymaster experienced a significant outage, which initially took uh, one in every three satellite users offline. I understand that you've completed an investigation. Can you tell me what caused the outage? Uh, yes, Senator, and first and foremost, um not our finest hour. I mean, and our, our thoughts go out to the, um, the customers, uh, around about 600 customers who had their service impacted for a period of, um, of up to six weeks. And um, it might sound um, uh, trite to say, but uh, service interruptions and managing networks is part and parcel of being a, a, a service provider. Mm. But this kind of outage is, uh, deserves the, uh, the classification of, of being unprecedented. So, and, and so as I when, I, through, when I quoted the numbers one in three, how many is the total of that? I'm sorry, Senator, what, what was... What's the total? So I said it, the, the outage took out roughly one in every three satellite users offline. Okay. So what, well, what I think it, it'd, be, it'd be worthy of me um, spelling out the, the, the sequence of events. Yeah, sorry, um, OK. Because it was a, a complex, and, and as I say, and I yeah. don't use the, the word lightly, an unprecedented um, yep. series of events. Okay, just and, yeah, and, walk me through what the and, outage And if, was. if you don't mind, Senator, I've got, I've, uh, actually, I've, I've got some notes here. So it was right. at um, 8.30 on the 21st of December, um, Optus, who managed, they effectively fly our satellites, confirmed yep. um, an off-orbit condition of our second satellite, which we call a uh, 1B satellite. Um, and uh, root cause analysis of why that happened, our satellite vendor, Maxar, mm. Um, has delivered their um, uh, PIR, their post-incident uh, review, and um, it cannot be, um, you know, 100% characterised as this, but with, with all, all the evidence points yeah. to a micrometeorite um, that okay. uh, impacted the satellite. Right. So what that did was um, it, it effectively makes the satellite's body rotate mm -hmm. um, whilst it remains in its orbit. Um, so the satellite is no longer um, pointing at the appropriate yeah. spot on Earth. So the payload, the uh, transmission system on that satellite, um, is, is effectively switched off for that period. Now that impacted um, uh, about 46,500 um, customers. Um, the uh, satellite uh, was able to um, find Earth Again, and yep. it's, it's um, you know it's one thing that the yep. it, it does that. Yeah, all you know, you say it's not yep. rocket science, Senator. Well, this, this is rocket science. Um, it, it found Earth. Yep. Uh, it recovered. Yep. Um, the uh, testing regime that that's undertaken meant that those customers were out uh, for a period of about seven hours. Right. Okay. So that took it through um, to about 3:20 a.m. on yep. the 22nd of um, uh, December. And and the satellite's got you know it's got some um, actually optical. 
um, recognition that, that saw some meteorite activity. Yeah. So we're pretty confident that that was the, the cause of, of, of that seven-hour outage that impacted Senator the, um, uh, well, 46,500 out of about 112,000 satellite right. customers. Okay, yep. But then, um, subsequent to that event, the, uh, the impact of those customers coming back online meant that, uh, look, the major issue, um, frankly, was for 573 customers, or so about 600 customers. Yep. Um, and they were off for about they were, a fortnight, They were off for about two weeks. Yep. Yep. So the, um, the issue was found to be caused by um, missing parameters uh, in, a, in a configuration file um, for, for the customer premises devices. So the boxes that NBN puts in the yep. customer's home, they get parameters from the network. Um, and those parameters were missing. Essentially, um, some systems in the network had those parameters and other, uh, and effectively knew that that service was there yes. and other, other network elements um, didn't believe that that service was there. Okay, so it couldn't pick it up. It couldn't pick it up effectively. Oh, okay. So it meant that, um, uh, and, and, and frankly it took us, um, you know, there was, there was a course of action, mm. three times a day updates, that kind of mm. thing, but it took uh, uh, quite a long time actually to, to delve into um, what was wrong yep. and how you could recover. Okay. In the meantime, you know, we, we had a few theories. We were mobilising people off, um, off annual leave to potentially do 600 truck rolls into the bush. Yep. Um, fortunately, we were able to recover with um, effectively uh, manual intervention. Right. So okay. since then, you'd say, well, what caused that? Yep. Um, there's um, uh, essentially a system um, that... Uh, um, uh, in, in uh, some load balances that we, we believe was the root cause, um, and we've, we've now we're now working um, with uh, our partners in uh, in the states to say, well, let's go down to the next level and the next level of yeah. root cause to understand how we can make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay. Meanwhile, we've got um, some what would you say emergency patches workarounds so that if we do identify this kind of thing happening again, we can rapidly identify it yep. and rapidly recover services. Deal with it. Yep. Okay. So, were any rebates paid to re retail providers and those affected 600 users because of that excessive downtime? Uh, I'd have to take on notice that on the, the, the timing context, but our um, wholesale broadband agreement. Um, prescribes rebates for these kinds of um, yes. uh, these, these kinds of service interruptions. And is that a, an automatic rebate, or do people have to apply? Or uh, it, should be, it should be automatic. Simply. Automatic. Okay, thank you. Now, later in the same hearing, Senator Rickart asked about the coming launch of the fibre overlay in fibre to the node and fibre to the curb areas. This is where end users can order a high-speed service, and MBN will come in and build a fibre lead-in to support those higher speeds. And by the way, she refers to it as a fibre backflip, should her reference there cause any confusion. Answering her questions were NBN CEO Stephen Rue and COO Catherine Dyer. So, Mr Rue, the lack of detail surrounding the fibre backflip overbuild of the copper seems to be an ongoing issue. Um, I want to talk through documents that the NBN Co has released to retail providers about the qualification and assurance processes for the fibre upgrade. So MBN Co has said it will charge a downgrade fee if a customer orders a higher speed plan to get the upgrade, but then downgrades to a slower plan within 12 months. So how much will MBN Co charge for the downgrade? Um, I believe it's $200. Okay. Um, if, a premises, if a premises downgrades after 12 months, say at the 14 month mark, there is no downgrade fee? That's correct. 
In August 2021, MBNCO said that up to 10,000 FTT in premises would be involved in an upgrade trial. However, that number was then scaled down to 525. <coughs> so this included 500 for fibre to the node and 25 for fibre to the curb. Why was it scaled down? Yeah, we, um, I mean, Catherine, do you want to talk to this? Or do you have sure. Yeah. So we engaged uh, in a consultative manner with the retail service providers to, uh, for them to essentially put out expressions of interest yeah. to their customers. And uh, we, due to a number of things that the retail service providers had going on, uh, the need to de you know, uh, develop IT systems and processes, uh, some of them elected not to participate in the trial. Right. So therefore, that sort of limited cut the, the, numbers. the, the yeah. numbers that would participate in, a, in an early trial. Can you tell me which retail providers participated in the trial? Um, I would uh, definitely, I'll have to take that we'll, on. We'll, we'll get that for you, Sandra, okay. before Thank tomorrow. Thank you. The, one the team will. <clears throat> have the 525 spots been fully filled? Uh, I, I will need to check that as well. Okay. And so as of right now, how many premises have actually been connected to full fibre leading since the copper backflip was announced by Minister Fletcher? We're, we're currently going through a trial period, Senator. We're, we're going to launch on uh, in March with with around about fifty thousand premises, and then we'll be connecting from then. Okay. So that, there's probably a couple that's gone through the actual process. Yeah. Um, but I but I think your question is really more about the actual sales of those additional services. Yeah, so that there's will a stop. couple that have actually been connected to that full that's, a, that's, that's what we call business readiness test. So all that does is test the process okay. between ourselves and retailers. So I think, I, I don't really think that's what you're asking. No. The, the, the answer to your question is we'd be launching that in March. Yes, okay. The um, end of March. So, so as of now, no premises actually o have... Other than the business readiness, a couple of premises, Senator. Yeah. They, as I said, we've, what, what, we, what we have is a million premises in design. Mm. We've 540,000 premises approximately being actually built at the moment and we, we will be releasing 50,000 for sale at the end of March and then it will accelerate from there. Yeah. Okay, so how much is it costing to build a fibre leading? We haven't yet built a fibre leading yet, Sandra, but you would expect... How much is it going to cost? Um, we would expect a number that is less than $1,500 on average, but it right. will, but it will um, vary depending... If that's, again, we're back to averages. So some yeah. will, be, will, will be much cheaper than that, some may be more expensive. Right. So if the downgrade fee is $200 within 12 months... Well, Senator, what, we're, what, what our concern was clearly that people would upgrade to get a fibre service and then would go back to a, to a lower speed. So what, what this just attempts to do is put a disincentive in place for people to do that. So if people really want... Now, what the retailer does with that fee is up to the retailer, of right. course. Um, but what we really wanted was people who were taking a service who would then be providing additional revenue to, to obviously to NBN yeah. to compensate okay. for the to the, um, the additional what, spend. What um, physical work was required to integrate the lead-in over the FTTC network? Back to FTTC. Mm. Catherine can talk to that at length. Uh, so, Senator, do you mean to move from FTTC to FTTP? Yeah, so what sort of physical work is required? Yeah, so, so essentially it is uh, splitting out the fibre in the pit, so yeah. where the... Um, the, uh, the DPU is the distribution point for the existing FTTC network. 
splitting out the fibre, creating a joint, if you yeah. like, and connecting the fibre lead in from that pit in through the leading conduit yeah. uh, into the home. Right. Okay. And how long would... I mean, I know it's difficult to say, but what would be the length of time for each of that, for, for each premise, to do uh, that? It, it actually depends. We The construction trials that we are running at the moment is the focus of the construction trials is to, under all conditions where possible, yes. is to use the existing leading conduit. So that drives both efficiency from both a time and a cost mm -hmm. perspective. So we've been trialling a lot of um, different innovative ways to do um, things like potholing and the way is that we actually flush the leading conduit. So where previously, you know, some of the, I guess, the <coughs> obstacles that we encountered under the previous Brownfields mm -hmm. FTTP rollout, we've taken those learnings and really looked at how we could take those into uh, you know, the, the new FTTC mm. to FTTP and FTTN to FTTP, and we're trialling a lot of those construction practices at the moment. So the answer is, in relation to time and cost, mm. it really the, the biggest de, uh, determiner mm. there is whether we can use the existing lead-in, right. and that's so what we we're endeavouring to, to do, that. rather yeah. than yeah, mm. um, install a new lead-in yep. conduit. Okay. Um, and more broadly, on a national level, as part of the copper backfleet, but how many homes has the local fibre distribution network passed to date? Actually, constructing. We are, in, we are currently building 540,000 premises. They haven't all passed though yet, Sandra, but they're actually physical work being conducted. And we have, a, we have a, a million premises that are actually passed through that pass through. The, well, in the design stage. Telstra issued its first half results this week. They were a mixed bag. Overall revenues and profits were down. Fixed margins indeed dropped to just 1%. But by contrast, mobile margins and earnings were quite healthy and definitely on the up. One of the big impacts on Telstra is coming from COVID, which has done all sorts of interesting things like uh, impact handset sales and retail stores. And that has paradoxical effects in terms of uh, liberating working capital. COVID has also suppressed population growth. When you have half the market, as Telstra does, that can actually suppress subscriber ads by a cool 100,000 or more a year. And Telstra is uh, definitely feeling the impact of that. Anyway, they had an analyst call this week with CEO Andy Penn, CFO Dickie Brady, and Group Executive Consumer and Small Business Michael Ackland. We pick up on the questions from Enko Rakowski from Credit Suisse. The first one, the delay in NBN reseller margin ambitions to FY25. Um, I'm also interested in whether this has also been driven by a more competitive environment, um, given that some of the smaller operators seem to be taking market share. Um, so any comments there would be useful. and. and I guess as part of that question, where are you seeing offsets within your business to maintain the overall group ambitions? Um, is it a stronger mobile performance? Obviously, mobile had a very good first half. So in terms of how you're thinking about that um, out to FY25. Um, and then secondly, 
the, you've obviously touched on mobile, um, and, and Michael, those comments around population growth, et cetera, very useful, but just your views on, on mobile market share over the period you added 84,000 postpaid subs, I think Optus had 70,000 over that same period. I guess, are those net ads from your perspective sustainable or have you perhaps benefited from incumbency given there have been lockdowns and some shadow lockdowns where the incumbent tends to do better in these limited switching? Um, and then finally, on free cash flow, um, I guess I'm just trying to understand the second half weighting given the working capital benefit that you got in the first half. Um, uh, perhaps this is one for Vicky, if you're able to talk to the factors that are driving this. Um, and, and again, as part of that question, do you expect the working capital benefit to continue beyond FY22? Thank you. Thanks, uh and show. Um, look, on the NBN reseller margins, I'll, I'll get, I will get Vicky to comment on that and also the free cash flow and then maybe Michael Acton can uh, make some comments on mobile market share and the outlook there. But um, there's no doubt that um, the NBN reseller market, if you actually, if we look at our peers, their margins have gone backwards. So there's definitely an aspect or an element of play there. The other dynamic that we experience probably more so relative particularly to the newer players is is we still are in the world of migrating customers to the MBN, so existing customers to the MBN, whereas they're just targeting new customers. And I mentioned in my opening remarks that we are now down to obviously the last few remaining customers that need to switch over to the MBN, but they are some of the most challenging customers to migrate technologically because the NBN has tended to back in some of those uh, more difficult uh, technical areas, which is not a criticism of NBN, by the way, it's just the, the, the natural dynamics. So that makes it quite a tricky thing to work through. So um, I'm confident we'll be through that by the end of the year and there's lots of initiatives that we do have in place, which um, maybe um, Vicky could comment on in terms of how we offset it and how we actually get the margin to that more to that mid-teens level um, in the time frame that we've indicated. But Vicky, do you want to take um, the rest of the ABN question and the free cash flow one and then we'll get maybe Michael to speak about um, mobile um, trajectory? Sounds good. Thank and thanks, Encho, for those questions. So, firstly, on the MBN reseller margin, yes, I mean there are a couple of things that are really driving that shift, moving it to the right. As I spoke to. Uh, the benefits of moving our fixed customers onto the new digital stack. Uh, we're progressing, but it's it's a little bit behind where we had hoped to be. So that definitely flows through because, as I spoke to, we undoubtedly are seeing with the uh, progress we are making on transitioning customers, we're definitely seeing both benefits in customer experience and also benefits flowing through in terms of the cost to support those customers. So, so that's one piece of it. Um, there is no doubt the trading performance is also playing a part. So as we just spoke to, um, net ads are negative for the half in our uh, CNSB fixed business. So that, that is playing a part. But um, at the moment, definitely the focus is on uh, that migration of customers to make sure we flow through those customer experience and and the cost benefits of that migration. And obviously, uh, we continue to compete in market and um, Michael might want to comment a little bit more on that with some of the things he's got in market right now. 
Um, on the, the third question on free cash flow, yes, my comment on free cash flow weighting, it, it is consistent with prior years. It's not heavily weighted second half, it's just a little bit more weighted second half, is, which is what we would ordinarily see. Yeah, the working capital improvements in the first six months driven by receivables, um, particularly obviously handset sales uh, remain at lower levels still with the impacts of retail store foot traffic through the half and also uh, supply constraints on mobile hardware. So that's played a part. In addition, collections have actually tracked well also. As I look to the second half, um, obviously we've got a strong focus on managing working capital um, and I, I don't expect any big swings in working capital, so we'll continue to manage that in a very disciplined way. As we look out to 23 and 24, um, obviously one of the big factors will be where do the volume of mobile hardware transactions uh, settle back to as we get through COVID impacts on foot traffic in stores and we get through uh, various supply constraints on mobile hardware. Uh, but we'll have a very strong focus on working capital. Uh, we know how important it is, um, but probably the biggest swing factor as you look further out is that uh, mobile uh, volume of hardware revenue, um, which we'll obviously manage and look to offset through other working capital improvements also, but that's, that's the biggest swing factor. Uh, Michael, I'll hand across to you. Oh, thanks, Vicky. I mean, I'll make a, a couple of uh, quick comments. Uh, the first on uh, the commentary around fixed and, and those new players, and I'd reinforce Andy's point around, um, you know, they, they are very attractive to customers, particularly those who've been at the, the tail end of, of MBM migration. Um, but we're very focused on delivering that significant uplift in customer experience. And we, although it's delayed, it is coming through and we expect that to um, give us a real headwind. Um, we're also seeing, I think, in terms of our shift of our mix towards the, the higher speed tiers uh, lift, and uh, we expect that lift to continue uh, as we move forward. So we're feeling confident about where we'll get to uh, on fix, but uh, that uh, delay in digitisation has meant um, we weren't able to uh, we're not able to get there as quickly as we would have we would have expected. Just on on mobiles um, and the sustainability or otherwise of of uh, of side growth. I mean, just a couple of comments around uh, what defined a little bit around the first half. And I think Andy mentioned we had a strong performance in enterprise. We had a strong growth across all segments, but 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 a particularly strong net ad performance um, uh, in enterprise from a consumer and small business point of view. Um, activations were down and activity in the market was down, but only slightly. And churn, our, our postpaid handheld churn was uh, on a sequential basis was down a little bit, but not, not dramatically. So we're feeling pretty good about our performance um, in market and our ability to track customers um, uh, as we move forward. Now, later in the call, Rod Slew from Remore asked about the advent of the LeoSat age and how that might impact on Telstra. Andy Penn's answers were revealing as they show Telstra is looking at satellite as a way to potentially offset some of its losses on its universal service obligations in the bush. Hi guys, thanks very much for taking my questions. Um, just a couple and they're kind of, I guess, at the margin questions on potential future risk. 
Uh, and the first is just, you know, with relation to the Starlink satellite system, which now seems to be up and running, and there seems to be some good reports uh, coming through of performance for remote areas, uh, and likewise your own contract with uh, Viasat just shows that sort of satellite capacity uh, to serve the market, which didn't really exist or almost didn't exist except for NBN's product uh, before, is, is is increasing soon and quite dramatically. And I suppose intuitively it feels like that should only have any effect at the margin at remote locations, um, which could well be posit- positive for yourself in terms of your uh, cost for serving those regions now if the USO requirements change. Um, but I'm just wondering, is there any risk that given the capacity that's going in there that this could become more than just current remote rural regions and perhaps move more into towns and have more of a direct competitive influence on uh, broadband supply um, and in particular perhaps places that would have otherwise taken 5G fixed wireless services. I guess that's the first part of the question and the second part of that question which is looking further out is is there a risk that these satellite systems can actually um, become much better at offering phone services rather than simply broadband services uh, and in particular mobile services uh, in which case they become again more of a threat to you know your superior coverage versus competitors um, this, I have a second question which is just which maybe if you could answer that maybe I can ask ask the second question after is that okay well, why don't you just get the second question out Rod and then I can get um, oh, okay. yeah. so I'll, I'll it's, take it's, the first it's one. coming back Yep, no problems. So it is coming back to this theoretical question of what happens in uh, an inflationary market, and I'm going to narrow that inflationary market down and say, what what happens in an inflationary market where uh, product inflation is faster than wage inflation, perhaps, and you've got consumers who are uh, are squeezed on discretionary spending? Uh, When you've got a product which is absolutely mainstream with its 50% share, but is mainstream with a 20% price premium over the competitors, in that sort of environment, how do you, how would you protect your your market share? Yeah, no, look, thanks very much, um, Rod. Look, just quickly, I mean, on that second part of the question, and I'll I'll throw it to Vicky and Michael maybe uh, to comment as well once I've commented on satellites. But um, I think in terms of differentiating, it, it, it has to be, I think, the same approach that we've always taken. I mean, you know, all really that the last two years has shown is just the criticality of communications and the demand for bandwidth, the demand for coverage, the demand for speed, the demand for resiliency, the demand for network quality has only increased. And um, so accept your point on discretionary spend, but when it comes to discretionary spend, people have to prioritise where they're going to spend. And I think, you know, telecommunications services are going to be high up on that list. And the quality of telecommunications services and the support that people get is going to be, you know, the key differentiating factor. So um, we've talked a couple of times and touched on this, uh, as well as the ability or the simplicity with which we can make appropriate pricing changes either up or down um, as well. So I, I don't think I have too much more to add on that, but I'll ask Vicky to see if she or Michael would like to comment from a consumer point of view. Um, on satellites, the 
It's a bit the same. I sort of mentioned this earlier when 5G first came along, everyone sort of said, oh, it's going to replace MBN. And I said, no, it's not. What it's going to do is it's going to complement MBN. And I think I would say the same is the case with satellites. And if you think about the amount of demand for data uh, and how it's increased and changed over time, when we launched 3G, which was back in the mid-2000s, 1% of all traffic on the network was data and 99% was voice. Today, that is completely the opposite. It's far less than 1% is voice and far more than 99% is data. And data volumes have increased 3,000 times since the mid-2000s. And that's only going to continue as technology adoption increases and, and of course, as files get, files get bigger. Um, with satellites, the main challenges with satellites is their proximity to Earth. So Geosat's probably sit at about 35,000 kilometres away and Leosat sit at anywhere between sort of 800 and 2,000 kilometres away. And so the key thing about satellites is you've got to get the signal from Earth to the satellite and back. And that causes both, that's both a power ch challenge and it's a latency challenge. So for home broadband, um, the challenge can be mitigated be by virtue of the fact that you've got an antenna on your home or, or a satellite dish on your home uh, and that is directly powered and directly um, aimed at satellite so you can get the signal when you've got the power to send that signal. That's a much more harder thing to do when it comes to, to handsets and, and also you have to transmit that signal when you get to the ground anyway, which is part of what we're doing with the new Series 3 geostationary satellite system for Viasat. We're building all the ground infrastructure, not just, by the way, for Australia, but Australia is their ground station base from which they're going to project signals back into uh, the rest of um, Asia. So, you so the point of saying all of that is, is you can see it absolutely as an alternative solution or another technology that can provide home broadband service. The latency point is more of is is an issue, obviously, on broadband, but it's also particularly an issue on voice, particularly for geosats. Um, Leosats can potentially make a difference there as well. But then also bear in mind, we're a reseller of NBN services, which is the wholesale provider of broadband. And as we've been discussing numerous times has come up during the conversation this morning, uh, our NBN reseller margins are pretty thin um, and our losses that we make from essentially servicing that last 8% and USO reform. So I, I think the development of satellite is a, uh, a great technology for us to be able to complement our existing technologies and address some of the services and uh, some of the challenges that we face today, particularly servicing that, that last 8%. Um, the Starlight the Starlink system is a go-direct-to-customer system. It's it's pretty pricey. I mean, not to say it won't come down, but I think it's about a $1,500 one-off cost and plus $140 a month um, for the actual service. But that, that could come down and, and that does offer a service. But like all technologies, it's subject to capacity constraints. And so in the early days, of course, um, people will get a better experience. But as that fills up, it will require more satellites to go up. Leosats tend to fall out of orbit um, pretty frequently in maximum sort of lifespan of five years. So there's a lot of capex involved in relaunching rockets and uh, and relaunching satellites. So look, I think the net net is, is that satellite is another interesting, innovative, complementary technology. We've just done a major deal uh, in the next generation of Geosat, which I think puts us in a really good position 
to take advantage of that, whether that's for end customer services, backhaul, emergency services, IoT, whole range of different use cases. And as I flagged um, when we did the Geo, sorry, when we did the Viasat announcement, we also have a number of plans in the LeoSat space as well, which I will talk more about uh, in the coming period of time. Uh, but with all of that said, I mean, I suppose the piece I didn't answer is, is it likely to encroach more into sort of metro and more sort of urban um, use cases? I, I can't see it doing that. I mean, peri-urban, maybe. Um, peri-urban are sort of these um, locations which are quite close to city centres, but very, very difficult to serve from a fixed wireless and um, mobile perspective because of the topography and the, the low density of population. So that could be a role to play. But I, I think, you know, there's so much investment in mobile and fixed and other infrastructure that, um, uh, which is much more proximate, obviously, to customers where I think, that, you know, satellite's probably not going to be as efficient. But um, look, with all of that said, Vicky, any more comments from you on the inflationary point? Yeah, thanks, Andy. And, and thanks, Rod, for that. So just under that, inflationary scenario that you spoke about. Just one thing to add, um, you know, the price sensitive end of the market is an end of the market that obviously exists and we've seen growth in that segment of the market over time. And what's important as we think about that is obviously our multi-brand strategy. So the Telstra brand, yes, operates at that premium and, you know, uh, it remains very important to us and that's why we do have a multi-brand strategy in place and our ability to compete through brands like Belong or through our MVNOs in some of those more price sensitive parts of the market um, is an important part of underpinning how we compete. So Rod, that's, that's one I would just add and as Andy spoke to, Certainly what we've seen with the Telstra premium, you know, through COVID, obviously connectivity matters more than ever. Um, and so maintaining that premium position with the Telstra brand and using our multi-brand strategy to compete as you think about the scenario you spoke about, obviously how we would execute would be again, very much reliant on that multi-brand strategy and ensuring obviously we maintain that Telstra premium. Michael, I'm not sure if you wanted to add any comments to that. I, only only one comment I think I think the other the other one that is an important part of our strategy moving forward is how that we um, differentiate based on the network experience differentiate based on the kind of connectivity experiences want people want to get and we think they're going to expand and while their affordability is always a challenge and even more so in the scenario you described uh, I think the opportunity um, to deliver optimized experiences um, for people for very for their, for their specific needs and their willingness to pay there can bring some structure uh, into, the, into the market on the consumer side in the way that data inclusions have in the past. Just beat it. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. See you next time.